0: Business Diplomacy Today, the podcast about international relations and geopolitics from a business perspective. We help you anticipate the changing political and societal trends that influence your business.
1: Welcome! My name is Matthias Katon, I'm your host. Business Diplomacy Today is sponsored by the Indo German Center for Business Excellence. The Center is a think-tank, research center, and network that connects people and organizations interested in business relations between India and Germany. As an academic institution founded in 2021 at Frankfurt School of Finance and Management, it is independent and impartial, but always close to the real world. To find out more about the Center, please go to indogerman.center, and you can also find this link in the show notes. Today, we will talk about the Munich Security Conference, an organization and a conference that takes place every year in Munich in uh, the winter. So the last one was in February this year. And to talk about that, we have a guest who knows a lot about this organization and the conference because she works there. Her name is Sophie Eisentraut. Sophie is the head of research and publications at the Munich Security Conference, which In case you didn't know, it is the world's leading forum for debating international security policy. In her capacity, she authors and edits the publications of the MSC on a wide range of security challenges, both conventional issues and emerging concerns. Prior to joining the MSC in 2018, Sophie was a transatlantic postdoctoral fellow at the German Marshall Fund in Washington, D.C. She was also at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki and at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, also known by its German acronym SWP in Berlin, where she conducted research on the legitimacy and reform of international organizations, challenges to effective multilateral cooperation, that arise from the re-emergence of non Western powers. That's certainly something I guess that we will address today. And strategies applied by authoritarian regimes that contest liberal democratic norms within global institutions. So very hot issues, timely issues that she is researching. Sophie holds a PhD in political science and a master's degree in international relations from the Free University of Berlin. Sophie, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me on the podcast.
1: So you've been uh, with the Munich Security Conference since uh, 2018. So you've seen a number of those conferences go by or you helped organize them. Let me start by asking, if you look back over those five years, how has the the mood or the feeling at these conferences changed over time. And in particular, if you compare this year's conference to last year's, because, of course, this year's was the first one since the start of the war in Ukraine. I think the last one was just before that. So is there any change in in terms of the mood or the discussions that you have been witnessing over the years?
0: Yes, I mean, I've, I've been... And part of the Munich Security Conference team for five years, so there's not a huge range of conferences I can compare. But in these five years, I I already observed that the mood has become more tense, um, more gloomy. I mean, the last Munich Security Conference that took place a bit more than a year ago was, I think, was ep- epitomizing this, this mood uh, a lot because it took place just a few days before um, Russia invaded Ukraine and the, the whole mood was one of glimpse of hope still remaining and, and a lot of efforts done to, to try to still prevent this war and discuss how it could be prevented but then the conference was over and a few days later the war started and the atmosphere at the conference was already characterized by um, concern over what's to come and how this will uh, not only affect Europe but the international order as such so I would say in in some ways we're probably benefiting um from a more gloomy international security environment because we do notice a lot more attention is now paid to to the conference and the discussions especially because the topic of Ukraine did play such a huge role last year and this year as well but of course there's there's the hope that that with these discussions we can also contribute to to peace and security and to to the discussions revolving this and I think one one more change I'm observing um, is also in terms of diversity and again it's it's only five years that <laughs> that I've been a, a member of this team, but um, the conference has become much more diverse in in many respects, both in terms of representation gender representation on the panels in the discussions, but um, most importantly also to this conference and to to questions about the international order, also in terms of representation of countries from the so-called global south and, and the topics that are of concern to them.
1: So you say global issues, geopolitics is now much more front and center than it was maybe a couple of years ago. So that's good for your organization, good for the conference in a certain way, maybe not so good for the world at large. So these things sometimes differ. If you look at back at this year's conference that just happened a few months ago, how was the, the discussion there? You said concerns over Ukraine, of course. Concerns is a relatively... I wouldn't say weak word, but, you know, everybody is concerned. Uh, the Chinese are probably also saying that they're concerned. The Russians are concerned. Everyone is concerned. But was there still a consensus about what is going on and how the situation might be resolved? Or did you experience uh, also some fractions in the opinion, especially if you look at participants from different parts of the world?
0: I think there were two, two parallel developments at the conference. One was... The thing I was witnessing was, of course, or everyone was witnessing that was was following the conference was a very strong show of unity and solidarity uh, with Ukraine, particularly from Western, the representatives of Western countries, but also uh, their partners. I mean, uh, President Zelensky was one of the opening speakers of the main conference. He was addressing participants in a video call and thus also set the tone for the whole conference. But I also thought that, many participants, especially from Western countries, really used the conference to signal their unity, their resolve, when it comes to supporting and showing solidarity with Ukraine. And, of course, there was also a very strong message in the direction of the Russian government to Vladimir Putin that he should not be expecting divisions to emerge. And, of course, also a very strong signal. And I felt speeches of many uh, of the speakers there uh, they're very coordinated in this way, sending a strong signal that the West was in there for the long haul and that uh, Putin should not hope that time would work in in his favor. So unity on that front. But of course, um, you you've already been alluding to it. The unity was not felt to the same extent when when you looked at the international community more broadly. That was represented in Munich. We did have a lot of representatives from the Global South this year and one of the main panels at the prime time uh, basically of the of the conference was featuring um, representatives from Namibia, from Brazil, from Colombia, the Philippines to to discuss questions about uh, related to the to the war in Ukraine but the international order more broadly and I had the feeling that you know this this was the opposite of, of a show of unity because it was pretty evident that not only on the main stage, but also in discussions behind the scenes that views both with regard to the war and how to go forward, but also with regard to the international more broadly, international order more broadly, differed quite a bit between these two groups of countries and representatives.
1: That is interesting. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Western unity, the Western show of solidarity, which to some observers is certainly also a surprise, I guess, because... I think it's fair to assume that at least uh, the Russians had hoped that uh, that would not be the case or that it would at least erode over time. But I, I agree, and I find it interesting that you also mentioned that because I wasn't at the uh, the Munich Security Conference, but I attended the Raisina Dialogue in Delhi a few weeks uh, later, which I think to a certain extent uh, the topics overlap or the similar topics that are being discussed there. And what I saw there, with also a lot of participants from the so-called Global South, probably the majority of participants there, is that uh, the view was quite quite different, both in the sense that a lot of countries either don't care or they only care about the secondary consequences such as high inflation you know increased prices for agricultural products for example or to the point where people seem to agree that the russians do have a point uh, if not invading by invading ukraine necessarily but at least by you know, accusing the West of hypocrisy and saying that, you know, it's it's all NATO's fault because it was, uh, you know, part of kind of a ploy of aggression. So, and what, what was being said there often was this uh, slogan, the West against the rest. Is that something that you would also subscribe or do you think it's a bit more complicated than that?
0: I do think it's a bit more complicated than that. And it's probably also a matter of how how you measure the support of, of countries of the so-called Global South in terms of Ukraine, but also the international order more broadly. But I I would totally confirm that the spirit that you were experiencing at the Resina Dialogue was also something that was really present in, in Munich. Our hope was actually that, you know, because the topic of the whole conference revolved around revisionism, but also about re-envisioning the international order, And of course, we did have the hope that together with countries from the global south, we would actually start this discussion about a renewed, um, reformed international order and and what that could look like um, to ensure that it has much broader buy-in from a much, much bigger international uh, constituency. But my feeling was that, you know, we're really only at the start of, of this dialogue because And I think that that was very visible in Munich, that many representatives from the global south um, were actually, before being willing to to enter discussions about the future international order, actually wanted to debate the conditions for this debate and wanted to discuss uh, the conditions for for eye-level conversation about the international order. And one of these conditions, of course, and and that's what you also just mentioned, is demanding much more introspection from the West itself about its role in the international order, about its behavior towards relevant elements of the international order and that it would really have to work on its uh, credibility deficit when it comes to defending this order. So I think it was really important that you know this conversation was started in Munich, but we are also keenly aware that this was only the, the very beginning and that a lot of talk about the conditions and a lot, a lot of introspection of the West Um, needs to come first before this can happen.
1: The question is, are we really at the start? Because if I look at uh, some of these major players in the global south, whatever that is exactly, that's also one of these uh, blurry terms. But the big countries, uh, the BRICS, for example, uh, we see India is uh, kind of on the fence. Uh, They can't really decide. uh, They would rather stay neutral, whatever that means. We have Brazil increasingly going in the opposite direction under the new uh, president Lula. We see South Africa uh, also going in the similar direction to the point where they're apparently considering leaving the International Criminal Court just to be able to invite Putin to a conference. So are we really at the start or could you also say that we're maybe at the start of uh, things going downhill furthermore?
0: Yes, um, I I hope that's not the case. But I mean, what what you're describing and what... What was evident in Munich as well and what experts are discussing a lot at the moment is is this phenomenon of countries that can be called swing states or the new non-aligned or or hedgers, um, powerful countries, influential countries from the so-called global south that really show that they're not willing to take a side in growing rivalry between the West and countries like China and Russia. They're trying to... um, come up with their own agendas and their own efforts to shape debates and, and the international order. And I think it's, to some extent, understandable because, of course, it's attractive to these countries not to choose a side. I mean, they can gain a lot of material concessions um, from from countries because they're attractive partners. Um, they can raise their, their status. They're much more visible uh, now uh, at the table uh, in, on many debates. Um, but also, it's understandable that it's really risky for these countries to choose a side in, in this competition because the future distribution of power, global power, is uncertain. So why would you choose a side if you don't know how this this competition ends? Uh, you depend on, on both sides a lot, so your very interests go against choosing a side. And you also don't want to f- be a part of furthering this this kind of block confrontation that's really not in your interest yeah. um, because a lot of studies have, have been showing that if economic block confrontation increases then it's it's really these countries that will lose much more or lose out much more than than the rich ones so it's it's understandable but i think this does not prevent dialogue because it also shows that these countries are not willing you know to to choose the other side um so there's a lot of chances to still sway them on specific issues
1: that sounds a little bit like a, I'm having a déjà vu here. So we go back to the Cold War where we have two blocks, maybe in slightly different compositions, but we essentially have two blocks. And then we have those countries that we used to call, call the, the non-aligned countries. So we're having the same thing over again in, in just a remake or a sequel in, in just a slightly different uh, compositions or... I mean, one says that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So is that just the second <laughs> verse of the Cold War?
0: I mean, there's a lot of similarities, yes, um, but I think there's also fundamental differences um, in terms of especially the the countries that we're talking about now being much more dependent on both sides in this competition and having much greater incentives not to be pulled into to one or the other direction. I think that someone once said that this is no longer about, you know, post-colonial awakening. Um, that that might have motivated um, non-aligned countries in in the past, but this is more about nationalist opportunism. And that I think that's also evident because all these countries that are not really willing to choose a side, they're, they're not forming a bloc. They're not, at least, from what I observe, I don't think there's there's so much coordination among them. They're really pursuing their own individual interests and they do have strong interests not to be pulled into one or the other direction. Um, And these are much stronger than they were um, in Cold War times.
1: Now, one of your research areas or research interests is um, multilateral cooperation. So let me ask you, is multilateral cooperation, as we knew it, is it dead? Will it be replaced by something completely different? Will we see other forms of bilateral negotiations more than the use of multilateral organizations. What's going on there? I mean, the UN has been, I think, rather silent and uh, probably also not very useful in these ongoing conflicts. If we look at what might happen with China, it's also very hard to see what kind of role they might play there. Are these institutions dead because they don't reflect any more the realities that we see?
0: I mean, that's the fear, and I think they're... There's a strong sense of it's difficult to, you know, reform and re-strengthen international institutions as long as it's not clear what the future distribution of power will will look like. And and you're rightly pointing to all these institutions that are paralyzed by um, great power confrontation. But I would also say that the picture is not that gloomy. Um, There are beacons of hope even the UN Security Council, where you would think you know, that that should be totally paralyzed now because Russia is a member, a permanent member, China is a permanent member, the US is a permanent member. So how can it still function at all? And I feel even though, of course, we do observe that the war in Ukraine and the ripple effects do, of course, influence discussions and, and votes in the organization and, and do lead to paralyzation in many respects, We've also seen both Russia and, uh, especially, also China, being really careful to ensure that the Council is not fully hijacked by these topics, and that there's still room for cooperation because they find the UN Security Council an important forum that that should not, you know, lose its relevance in, in international politics. So I don't think, you know, we need to worry about all of the organizations and um, multilateralism is, is dead. Uh, also, the UN General Assembly. I mean. Opinions differ a lot, but I mean, the U.N. General Assembly has has been revived in, in, in some ways, precisely because the U.N. Security Council couldn't um, act on, on Ukraine. Um, and I think the votes that have been happening there were over more than 140 countries have both condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also its attempted annexation of Ukrainian territory shows that the symbolic power of the U.N. General Assembly um and the moral pressure it can create is, is still pretty pretty evident and might even have be, become stronger as a result of the war.
1: The Munich Security Conference is a conference, of course, as the name of the organization also suggests, but I understand it's much more than that, at least now, and uh, you're also the head of research and publications, Uh, and I think the major publication that you have is the Munich Security Report that uh, was published, uh, or the latest edition was published in conjunction with the recent conference. Could you share some of the key findings that you and your colleagues made in that publication for our listeners?
0: Yes, our our flagship publication, the Munich Security Report, is usually published one week ahead of our main conference, and is of course attempting to also set the the informal motto, the informal theme of the of the conference. And I think this year, this again worked extremely well because the topic of the report was revision, and we were playing with with two words here, with both with uh, revisionism and then also with vision or re envisioning. And it was zooming in both on the challenges for the international order that's, that's posed by authoritarian powers with the intent to alter or actually upend many of the, the principles enshrined in the international order. On the one side, zooming in into all the things, you know, we're looking at Ukraine a lot at the moment, but it's certainly not the, the only instance where the international order core principles of this order have come under attack it might be one of the most aggressive instances or examples of this but it's not the only one and it's also not the russia russia and um with its support by china they're not the only actors that are deeply frustrated with the international order so we're looking at this but also you know we we didn't want to simply be be gloomy and and point to all these these challenges but we also wanted to uh, debate about a proper response to all of this. And our feeling was that an effective response to revisionism means that you you need the buy-in of a much larger part of the international community than seems to be supporting this order now. And that's only doable if if you really re-envision the international order and jointly think about how to reform it, to renew it, and how to ensure that it better serves the interests of of all the countries in the world and all the people.
1: A bold prediction, the world in 10 years. We have one fixed segment in our podcast and we call that a bold prediction, the world in 10 years. So we ask all our guests to look at the subject matter that we're discussing in that episode and give us their prediction for the world in 10 years we understand that that's usually very difficult and I think in your case, given the volatility, even more so. But still, I would like to invite you to give us your perspective on where do you think the world will be in 10 years from now?
0: Yes, it's a really a difficult task uh, to think 10 years ahead of now if you think what what just happened the last two to three years alone um, with a pandemic and a war in, in Europe uh, and many other developments that no one had had seen coming, um, but I will give it a try. And my prediction also speaks to your earlier question about the future of um, international cooperation and multilateralism, um, because I would think that in in 10 years' time, we will probably be, be witnessing a world in which informal and more flexible arrangements for cooperation among states will play a much greater role than they already do now. So I'm speaking of formats like the Quad, where um, India, Australia, Japan, the U.S. are grouped. Formats like the G20, uh, maybe even an extended G20 that also includes the African Union. One reason for this prediction is that that we're observing many former institutions um, to be paralyzed by great power competition and or not including powerful countries from the global south with whom exchange and cooperation will become much more more relevant in the future. But I think also from the point of view of these so-called swing states, these hedging countries themselves, they will likely prefer the kind of formats that do not want them or not demand them um, to formally bind themselves to certain parties, uh, but formats where they can be uh, more informally aligned and cooperate on very specific matters. So I think these kind of formats will become much more attractive and will be used and established more extensively in the future.
1: Okay, that is interesting. So rather than trying and trying again to reform the big multilateral organizations, which... I think has been tried for for many, many years. I remember I used to work at the World Economic Forum and we were working on a project exactly on the same topic, which was called the Global Redesign Initiative. That was more than 12 years ago. And I think if we revisit the ideas that were developed there and look at how much progress has been made, it's probably very, very uh, little that has happened. So what you're saying is that these institutions will probably stay somewhere there, you know, they will not go away, but they will be sidestepped by a plethora of smaller, nimbler, more informal dialogue fora or, or kind of smaller alliances uh, that are easier to handle, right?
0: Yes, I, I would expect that this is happening. I mean, we're still witnessing attempts to reform existing more for- formal international institutions and I think these will be ongoing and there will be greater pressure to, to reform them, to ensure greater voice and representation of countries from the so-called global south but this is a really cumbersome process um, and and we're witnessing that a lot of institutions struggle to uh, to update in this regard so I do do really think that these other formats will be used much much more extensively because they're more flexible but it's it's also taking us into a world that's a lot more, more transactional I guess.
1: This podcast looks at these issues from a business perspective, hence the name Business Diplomacy Today. So I would like to focus a little bit on that. Uh, What is the role of businesses in this uh, whole thing? Are they just observers that somehow kind of look at what's going on uh, and then try to React in the best way possible, or is there also a a positive role that businesses can do help solve some of these issues shape them um, or somehow be be a part of it what's your take there
0: There's no denying that um, we're in now in a in a different geopolitical environment, and that this demands a a fundamental rethinking of many business strategies and models because I think for a few years ago, we wouldn't have thought that, you know, economic interdependence, countries that are economically so interdependent would be uh, engaging in war. Oh, maybe to, co- to correct that, you know, one would expect that economic interdependence would stop countries or prevent countries from, from acting aggressively because there's an economic price tag to it. But we've been seeing that with Russia... That this price tag doesn't seem to hold Russia back to to pursue its aggressive interests, and there's a lot of concern with China as well. And I mean, this is these changes are something that that business, of course, have to factor uh, into their their strategies. And and I'm also my impression is a lot of them are already doing this, but not not everyone's probably willing to draw these conclusions because it's difficult. But then I also feel that. Business at the heart of this challenge to to navigate a tension that we haven't talked about so much yet, but the tension between de-risking and reducing over-reliance on certain countries, but also at the same time keeping an open global economy. That's not going to be an easy task. But but I think businesses, by taking decisions, they're they're shaping how this tension is resolved every single day, and their experiences in doing so can also I think, feedback into discussions that very often are very abstract um, about values, but these businesses could inform them with much more more concrete experiences about the tensions, contradictions they experience. And I think maybe last point, uh, we should also acknowledge that business are already playing a relevant role, I think, in, in initiatives that are aimed at again, strengthening the international order and renewing it. For instance, we have the Global Compact, where companies are organized and playing an important role in efforts to reach the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So I think they are already playing a role in um, efforts to to try to, to improve the order.
1: Do you get a lot of business participants at the Munich Security Conference, or is that still like a minority of the participants?
0: I wouldn't be able to give a concrete number right now, but... Business is present in in Munich, of course, because a lot of the, I mean, mostly, of course, on tech topics, cyber topics, those kind of topics, where we want to hear their perspectives and basically engage them with the civil society, the decision makers, the heads of international organizations in dialogue.
1: I'm asking because I think it's quite clear if you especially listen to politicians and also people from the international relations community, there's a lot of talk going on about uh, rebalancing, about making supply chains more resilient by having different alternatives, not relying too much on on one particular market or supply stream. I sometimes wonder to what extent this has reached the level of the individual companies in the sense that I see a a difference between what might be might make sense on the macro level for you know a, a society or or an economy and what seems to be the plausible way at least short term for an individual company and i see lots of even large corporations for example doubling down on china on china investments despite the risk the real risk that is also attached To uh, the individual company, you know, if uh, things um, go really bad and there is uh, some kind of an armed conflict over Taiwan, that will obviously directly affect uh, any type of investment that these companies make. But still, big uh, chemical companies in Germany, for example, a big automotive company uh, recently, the CEO, seemed to be doubling down on China. So is that something that has not really reached the level of the individual CEO, let's put it that way, or is that something that they're just ignoring on purpose because they, I don't know, hope for the best?
0: I was can, can probably provide more insights as to what what the reasons are. I mean, I'm also scared that we're doing the same mistakes again with China that we've been doing with Russia and, and not heeding the lessons enough. And there's a lot of influential German companies engaged in in China that right now do not. Um, I mean, as, as you state, do not. Seem to be concerned enough about the the potential ripple effects if we saw escalation in in Taiwan, for instance, and and what that would mean. So I'm not seeing a lot of de-risking strategies there. Yeah, I, I mean it's probably also I mean, I mean some some still try to to argue that you know China and Russia are different cases, and our dependence on China is so much bigger on China than on Russia. So the the task is also much more difficult, of course. And many of these debates have only recently begun, so I think it it takes some time for this to really arrive at the the level of of business strategies. But I think it's it's a really urgent thing, and and I think everything we've experienced in terms of needing to reduce our dependence on on Russian energy, I think this will look like a cakewalk in in comparison to what will have to happen if relations with with China get, get much worse
1: yeah that's probably right and I think you, you're right the interdependence is much much deeper and broader also I have my colleague Horst Döchel, here who runs our Sino-German Center who is an expert on China and he says well you know because the interdependence is so much greater both ways he is uh, rather optimistic that uh, things will work out uh, well but as you said that is not a um, necessarily a, a kind of a stopping uh, reason for these kind of escalations and and something else that I just came to mind uh, is I believe that before the the first world war global economy was also quite uh, integrated there was uh, it was actually fairly open in terms of trade and that did not stop the first world war from happening. So looking at uh, China and Taiwan as you rightly said uh, if if something really bad would happen there in terms of a conflict, The current conflict over Ukraine with Russia would probably seem like a a mild uh, foreplay of sorts. What is your feeling? I know this is extremely difficult. What do you think? How will things evolve there? Will we see a a, a further degradation of uh, the uh, relationship between the West, in particular the U.S., and China? Will there be a way to pull this around and and enhance the, the relationship again? What's your prediction for this year, maybe next
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the at the Munich Security Conference and China's participation, um, especially the high-level one, I have to admit that my hopes are not really high in this regard. I think there was already this concern about tensions was really, really present in, in Munich, but I did not have the feeling that the speech, especially given by State Councilor Wang Yi, increased hopes for relations between the us and and China to improve anytime soon, and it also, I don't think did anything in terms of um, increasing hopes that China could um, change course in what many perceive as as an increasingly assertive, uh, even even aggressive foreign policy. I mean for those who who have not been following this speech, the state councillor, Wang Yi he was, was really using very harsh words directed at the U.S. I mean, this came also just a few days or weeks um, after the spy balloon incident. So he was criticizing the U.S. very harshly about um, its decision to shoot down the balloon, um, but also when asked about whether he would be willing to assure participants that um, they don't have to expect an escalation um, of the, the Taiwan crisis. He, he said he would reassure the audience, but only of the fact that Taiwan belongs to China and that, would, that China would do anything to keep it this way. So I think this was really not a speech that increased hopes in, in terms of both China's foreign policy and in terms of U.S.-China relations.
1: This conflict has often also been cast as a fight or uh, between liberal, free, democratic societies on the one hand and authoritarian regimes, whether they be from China or Russia or whatever, on the other side. Is that something that you agree with? Is this also a normative conflict or is it just geopolitics where for one reason or another a lot of authoritarian regimes seem to be on one side and the liberal West on the other? What is it? Is it, is it norms, values, or is it just pure geopolitical power play that is at stake here?
0: I think it's both. I'm someone who who really thinks that we're witnessing a more systemic competition between autocracies on the one hand side and democracies on the other. And I mean, our our Munich security report is is zooming in a lot of policy fields where this competition is playing out and where you can clearly see an authoritarian vision of how these policy fields should be governed, where liberal principles play little or no, no role against a, a more democratic, liberal vision of, of the international order and of these principles. And that's that's visible when it comes to human rights. It, it's visible when it comes to development, um, global infrastructures. It's, it's really in, in so many areas. So I think that no one can deny that this is taking place. I mean, we're also showing that in most of these policy fields, the picture is more complex. It's not only these two visions against one another, but there's a lot of issue-specific cleavages and frustrations um, that need to be considered. So, so it would be far too simplistic to, to just speak of democracies against autocracies on on all levels and in all um, policy fields. But I think you know the reason that that China with Russia's support is is pursuing this vision is because it's it's not about it is about values but because it's in the interest to pursue these values it's, i would find it difficult to disentangle the the values from the the interest and and power aspects
1: Do you think the liberal democracies should also see this maybe as an opportunity to be more assertive about the the advantages of those societies? I mean, I remember not too long ago, a lot of people either explicitly or implicitly said that, you know, maybe authoritarian regimes are better or work better, especially for development, uh, looking at China, saying, you know, the the amount of economic development uh, that has been achieved there would not have been possible in a democratic society. Do you think that the Western countries or the democratic countries, the liberal countries, can use this as an opportunity to push uh, harder for their way of life, uh, to put it that way?
0: Maybe the first step, I mean, in order to do this, that, that demands a lot of unity and, and purpose in the West. And I think that's something at least that the war, that Russia's war against Ukraine has really strengthened. And I mean, some say it has really instilled a new sense of purpose into to democratic formats. And that's probably also to to thank um, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people because they have been demonstrating that this is possible um, to be resilient and, and to fight back when it comes to the attractiveness of these values, I'm a bit more skeptical. I mean, I have the hope that they are and that it's possible to renew the international order based on exactly these principles, but I think, I mean, you've already pointed to the fact that this narrative of democracies against autocracies that's also something that a lot of countries in the global south react to very, in a very allergic way because they do not like to be pulled into block confrontation, so I think it's we probably also have to be careful how we portray our efforts to to strengthen these values. But they're they're shared in in so many parts of the world, and it's probably more a question of how to frame it and how how to approach these partners than about the values itself.
1: Yeah, could it also be that it's not just because it's often not just about democracy as a way of government, but it's also about a set of values, for example, liberal values that are prevalent in at least uh, the majority of the Western countries, uh, ranging from, I don't know, acceptance of LGBTQ rights and, and all these other things that are usually tied into that, that I think one has to accept in large parts of the world are vastly less popular than we would maybe wish for, at least from the perspective of Western Europe.
0: I'm not sure. I mean, you do have a global development of decline in democracy in, in countries of the world, but I think it's important to distinguish governments from people because I do also think that in the past year and years we've we've witnessed a lot of developments that, at least to me, um, give the impression that liberal values are cherished in, in many parts of the world and that they're alive and well, but, but people have to fight for... Their implementation in, in their specific countries. I mean, the protests in Iran are one example. So I wouldn't be that pessimistic that these values are not shared. But I think one thing we're observing is that Chinese and Russian narratives about certain values being Western and not universal are actually resonating um, on the ground in, in many countries of the world, but not because you know, these these countries necessarily want to side with China and Russia, or re- really don't agree with with certain values. But because there's so many frustrations with uh, the international existing international order and its main guardian, um, the West, that these narratives resonate very well.
1: Speaking of values, one final area that I would like to touch upon is the U.S. presidential elections are coming closer. They're showing up on the horizon, and it, right now. It seems fairly likely that the Republican nominee will again be Donald Trump. So there is at least a possibility that he might get reelected for a second term. Should that happen? What would that mean for the whole array of issues that we've been discussing from Ukraine to China and other issues? And what would that also maybe mean for us here in Europe in terms of maybe becoming more self-reliant on a lot of these issues?
0: Yes, I mean the speech President Macron gave on his way back after visiting China caught a lot of attention for very good reasons. Very controversial, but I think the element that most people agreed on, even though uh, they probably didn't like Macron's wording, is that Europe needs to really work on its sovereignty, its own um, yeah, its strategic sovereignty, strategic autonomy, um, because even you're rightly pointing out Trump is at the moment the front runner, but even the other frontrunner of the Republicans also would cause a lot of trouble for transatlantic relations and a lot of the unity that has so nicely been on display in in Munich. So we do definitely need to prepare for this eventuality. Personally, I do find it very concerning that both major frontrunners, at least at the moment, suggest that their look at Ukraine and support for Ukraine looks much different from from that of the current administration so i think we would have to to brace for major changes in this regard
1: but isn't that a very simple answer i mean the ukraine wouldn't be there militarily without the us i mean do you think it's even theoretically feasible that european countries would be able to provide the level of military support to ukraine if the us uh, pulled out for whatever reasons
0: I think the much more difficult element I think in in terms of capabilities of course there are certain capabilities lacking in in Europe that only the US can offer but I think the much more important element in generating the kind of support that Ukraine has received was was more um political leadership and and getting everyone together in in support of Ukraine and and building this this consensus about which which type of support and how bold this support should look like. So so I'm much more worried about this element if that's suddenly lacking. And then Europeans should step into this leadership role. Okay, that's interesting.
1: I would have thought the other way around because I think that Europeans, Europeans are usually quite good with statements, but not so much with uh, you know putting your foot where your mouth is. Or how's the saying? So in terms of statements or support, yes. But if it's about delivering weapons and other stuff, that's maybe more difficult. But it's I mean it's interesting to see that uh, you see it the other way around. Uh, but anyway, I think what we agree on is that uh, this have potentially very catastrophic consequences for the political order in, in Europe.
0: Executive Briefing. What you should read now.
1: Sophie, we have another element in our podcast where we ask uh, our guests to provide a few reading tips uh, for our listeners who would like to learn more about the issues that we've been discussing here today. So what would your suggestions be for our listeners?
0: There's a book I would recommend, even though I only started to read it, but I am already confident that it's worth continuing and and worth recommending it to others too. And the book is called "The Uses and Abuses of Weaponized Interdependence." Um, it was published in 2021 uh, and edited, among others, by by Henry Farrell and Abram Newman. Uh, so two scholars that have also coined the term weaponized interdependence in the first place. And I'm sure many of your listeners are are probably familiar with the concept of weaponized interdependence, um, which points to the phenomenon that actors increasingly exploit their position in economic and, and social networks, so in relationships of interdependence. And I think it's a really important concept to look at the world, provides a really important lens to look at the world in an era where economics and security are much more closely Linked, or at least where the original idea that economic interdependence uh, has a moderating effect on states' relations with each other seems to no longer hold. And also why I would recommend it is because it, apart from many other contributions, it also includes contributions on the consequences of weaponized interdependence for countries of the Global South, um, which I think is something that hasn't really sufficiently been looked at. And I would also, if I may, recommend a much shorter piece, but I think that it's a really powerful rebuttal of Macron. We already mentioned him earlier, Uh, Macron's claim, and I'm exaggerating it here, uh, that Taiwan is not Europe's business. I think he said that we shouldn't get engaged in crises that are not ours. Um, And I think that paper proves the exact opposite and very impressively so that we should be concerned about Taiwan and the ripple effects of a crisis would really affect us as well because this paper um, its called The Global Economic Disruptions from a Taiwan Conflict published by the Rhodium Group and it's trying to estimate the economic consequences of a blockade of Taiwan by China. So um, actually a really conservative estimate because it's not even factoring in a military confrontation um, impact from international sanctions or military response. Um, But it's already showing how grave disruptions would be and how hard to reverse um, as well, not only because of trade loss with Taiwan, but also because of trade loss with China due to contraction in global trade financing. So very short, but I think very impressive.
1: Those sound both very, very interesting. We'll make sure to put the links to those publications in the show notes for our listeners. And I would also add a third recommendation, of course, which is the Munich Security Report, which <laughs> I mentioned earlier that you co-edited and co-published. I think that's also an excellent source of additional information about those Topics, Sophie, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for this interesting conversation on a volatile topic. Uh, So we'll probably have to invite you back at some point in the future to see how these things have evolved. Thank you. This was another episode of the Business Diplomacy Today podcast. This podcast is presented by the Indo-German Center for Business Excellence. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, we would also be delighted if you would leave a review or a rating there. You can also go to our website, businessdiplomacy.today, to check out the show notes of this episode. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening.